0: All right, turn to James chapter 1. James chapter 1. Back in James this morning, time for some more conviction. I assume that's what you expected as you showed up this morning, knowing that it was James. Well, it is human to make excuses. We all do it. Some more audacious than others. came across a story in UPI News about MetLife Insurance Company about some of the audacious excuses that they have been given by automotive insurance policyholders when they got into car accidents. So here are some actual excuses that their policyholders gave them after an accident. Here's some of my favorites. Um, One guy claimed, an invisible car came out of nowhere, struck my car, and vanished. I'm wondering how that went when the police officer showed up. I wonder if he bought that excuse. Uh, Another one. The guy was all over the road. I had to swerve a number of times before I hit him. Like, it sounds like he's the victim here. Uh, As I reached an intersection, a hedge sprang up, obscuring my vision. Bad hedge. Uh, A telephone pole was approaching fast. I attempted to swerve out of its path when it struck my front end. (laughs) And then here's my favorite. I pulled away from the side of the road glanced at my mother-in-law and headed over the embankment. It's great. It's nice. (laughs) Hope he didn't show that one to his mother-in-law. We all make excuses. It is human nature that when we fail, when we uh, make some error in our lives, when we make a mistake, when we sin, when we mess up, it is human nature to look for someone else to blame. We, We try to shift the blame off of ourselves and onto someone else or something else by any means possible that tendency to try to shift the blame, that actually goes all the way back to the dawn of human history. Very first people, Adam and Eve. They sin, remember God created this tree of the knowledge of good and evil right in the middle of the garden, said don't eat that one. All the others you can eat as much as you want, just don't eat that tree's fruit, but they do. And then God shows up and it's obvious, there's the eaten apple, what has happened? And then here's what Adam and Eve say. After the very first sin, Genesis 3, 12 through 13, The man said, the woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me from the tree and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this you have done? And the woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. The first sin brings the first excuse. Now, actually, I'm I'm more with Eve here. I can understand her excuse, the the serpent, Satan, incarnate, he deceived me. Okay, still an excuse, but at least that's a little bit reasonable. Adam, oh man, how audacious is this? Not only is it the woman's fault, but who else's? God, the woman you gave me, God, if you would have just given me a better wife, I wouldn't be in this fix. He has the audacity to blame God, because that's what human beings do. When we mess up, we look for someone else to blame, even if that means blaming God. And that is what James' audience was doing. As we go through the book of James, we need to understand, as they faced difficulties and as they chose to sin, they were tempted to blame God, to shift the blame off of themselves and onto God. Let's review for a moment. We've already learned a lot about this audience that James was writing to. Back in verses 2 through 5, we learned that they're facing difficulties. Their life is hard. Uh, they're facing trials, and a couple trials in particular that this audience faced, they faced persecution and poverty really hard trials, really hard trials that that God gave to them for good. Now, God did not create persecution. God did not create poverty. Neither of those were in the garden. But God in his sovereignty allowed these trials to come into the lives of James' audience. And why did God do it? Well, for their good. God gave them these trials so that they could grow in holiness and so they could earn eternal reward and honor in the next life. God meant these trials for good, but as is so often the case, trials can become an excuse for sin. When we suffer, it can make it easy to to run into the pleasurable embrace of sin. Sin offers an escape, even if just for a moment, sin offers an escape from the pain. Trials can become an excuse for sin, and as we read through James, we're going to see that his audience was using their trials and as, as an excuse for a wide variety of sins. A lot of sins we're going to see in James, favoritism, hoarding wealth, pride, selfishness, disobedience, all kinds of sins that they were excusing because of their trials, and As James walks them through this book and convicts them of these sins that they're committing, they give in to our natural human tendency. When confronted with sin, they try to shift the blame. They try to shift it off to God. This is God's fault. Yes, James, these are bad things, but these are not my fault. These are God's fault because God is the one who brought these trials into my life. God's the one who made my life hard. I wouldn't have given in to that sin yesterday if God had just made my life a little bit easier. If my job was just a little less stressful, if my kids were just a little more obedient, if I just had a little more money, God, then I wouldn't have given in to sin. You made my life hard, so it's your fault. That's what they're saying. I don't know if you've ever imagined those thoughts yourselves. I I have. When I have sinned, I I am amazed to see that the first inclination, the first thing that rises within me is the desire to shift the blame off of myself. That's just human tendency. I want this blame. I want this guilt off of me. And so when I have sinned, I am tempted to blame God for it. God, I would not have done this if you would have done X. If you wouldn't have held out on me, God, then I wouldn't have given into that sin. If you would have been better to me, if you would have loved me or if you would have been more fair to me, then I wouldn't have given in to sin. James' audience, like all of us, are, are tempted when, when they sin, when they fail, to shift the blame off of themselves and onto God. But James won't allow that. James won't put up with that. James is going to bring us face-to-face with with our responsibility this morning. Because James knows uh, until we come face-to-face with our responsibility, until we own up to our sin, we will never overcome it. Sin will defeat us as long as we don't take ownership for it. And that really is the core idea I want to convey to you this morning. Big idea of this whole sermon. Big idea I want you to walk away with. You are never going to overcome your sin until you own up to your sin. You're never going to have victory over that sinful part of your life until you take responsibility for it. If you blame it on others, if you make excuses for that sin in your life, that sin will own you. It will defeat you. You will never have victory until you take responsibility. So James is going to help us do that this morning. He wants us to take responsibility for our lives, for our sin, for the things that we do wrong. And so he is going to lay out for us proof, proof that shows definitively that God is not at fault and that we are. And so that's where we're headed. We're going to start with the first part of that. God is not at fault for our sin. That's where James starts. Do not blame God. Look at verse 13. Verse 13, James says, Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil, and he himself does not tempt anyone. James is saying two things about God in this verse. Two things he wants us to understand about our God. The first is that our God is untemptable. Our God cannot be tempted by sin. In other words, there, there is no sin that is ever attractive to God. There is no sin that is ever desirable to God. What James is getting at is, is what the Bible calls God's holiness. God is holy, Isaiah puts it this way, Isaiah 6, 3, and Isaiah sees God, he sees the throne room of God, and one angelic messenger called out to another and said, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts, the whole earth is full of his glory. Now holy, 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 in Hebrew they did not have uh, words like we do in English like very or exceedingly, so you couldn't say very holy. The way that you emphasize something in Hebrew is you repeat it. So, if you want to say very holy, you say holy, holy. Notice he says holy, holy, holy. In other words, I can't emphasize it more than this. Interestingly, this is the only attribute of God in all of Scripture that's repeated three times not his love, not his grace, not his power or knowledge, his holiness. Holy, 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 at the core of his being, the fundamental nature of God is he is holy. And holy means to be separate, to be distinct. God is utterly, forever, completely distinct from creation and sin. That's the idea of this word. God is absolutely separate, distinct, opposite of creation and sin. Now, for those of you who, uh, like me, are uh, into science, a little nerdy, I'm an engineer in my background, and so I like to think of it this way. Maybe this will be helpful for you. Relationship of God and sin is like the relationship of matter and antimatter. They are complete and utter opposites. They cannot coexist in the same place. So God and sin, they cannot be together. They cannot mix. God cannot be a little tiny, tiny, tiny bit sinful. They're absolute opposites. John puts it this way in 1 John 1. This is the message we have heard from him and announced to you that God is light and in him there is no darkness at all. God is light and sin is darkness. Now think about light and darkness. You can't mix light and darkness. By definition, they cannot exist in the same place. This little space is either lit or it's dark, one or the other. They can't both be here. And if you try to bring both of them together, light and darkness, which one wins? Light every time. Light always drives out darkness. Darkness is just the absence of light. When light shows up, it wins. It overcomes darkness. So with God. God and sin cannot coexist. When God shows up, sin flees. God is forever utterly distinct from sin, separate from sin. So God is untemptable. He can't be tempted by sin. And that leads to the second point about God. God is therefore not a tempter. God does not tempt us. Never does God tempt us. Now to understand what James is doing here, uh, we have to look at that word a little bit, tempt. It's interesting in Greek, the same Greek word can be translated test or tempt. If you see test or trial in the Bible, it is the same word as tempt or temptation. Same word. You have to distinguish by the context. The context tells you which of those ideas is in mind. When you see it translated test in the Bible, in your verse that you're reading, a test is a challenge designed to grow us and bring us honor. A test is a good thing. It's meant for a good outcome. When the word is translated tempt or temptation, it means an enticement designed to ensnare us in sin. Temptation is a bad thing. It's evil. It's designed to cause you to fail. So the same word can go either way. And, and, and the reason that we need to distinguish this is according to scripture, God does test. God does test us. God does test his people. We have lots of examples of that throughout scripture all the way back, Genesis 2 and 3, what we were just talking about. That tree of the knowledge of good and evil planted in the middle of the Garden of Eden. What was that tree? It was a test, a trial, a test for Adam and Eve. Let me ask you a funny question. I don't know if you ever thought about this. Why did God put the tree there? God doesn't like sin. God would have preferred that Adam and Eve would have obeyed. So if that's the case, why not plant the tree up on the top of Mount Everest? Long, long time before Adam and Eve can get there. Why not plant it well out of their reach? Why put it right in the middle of the garden, this beautiful, luscious tree? Why did God create this trial? What was God's motivation behind this test? Well, grace. The test was a gift. Think about it. What is it that distinguishes you from the rest of creation? Human beings from cats, dogs, cows, trees. What is it that distinguishes us from everything else? We alone are made in the image of God. What does that mean? It means that you alone are able to make moral choices. Cow can't make a moral choice. Dog can't make a moral choice. You and God alone get to make moral choices. But to make that moral choice, to get to be like God, to live out the image of God, you have to have a choice to make. If there was no tree of the knowledge of good and evil in the middle of the garden, then Adam and Eve would never have a choice and they would be no different than a cow. The tree is a gift. The test is a gift from God. It's meant for their good to allow them to be like God and make moral choices of righteousness. So God tested Adam and Eve. Uh, We have another test. A short time later in the book of Genesis, one of the greatest tests ever, God shows up uh, in the life of a man named Abraham. And in Genesis 22, God tests Abraham. God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, here I am. He said, take now your son, your only son, whom you love, Isaac, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I will tell you. It's a pretty tough test, isn't it? it seems pretty cruel. It seems like a really harsh test. I know I have a son. He's, he's about three. A uh, little boy named Luke, beautiful, love, love this little boy. I, I cannot imagine Luke dying it's not something that I think about. It would just depress me to think about that. But even more unimaginable is the thought of my God telling me I have to kill my son. But that's what God did for Abraham. Abe, go kill your son. Why did God do that? Why did God create such an unbelievably cruel, harsh test in Abraham's life out of grace, as a gift? You know the story, Abraham obeys. He takes Isaac to the mountain. He's about to sacrifice him. God steps in and delivers Isaac. God was never gonna allow harm to come to Isaac. God loves Isaac more than Abraham did. God steps in and because Abraham obeyed, because he passed this test, God says a few verses later, by myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this thing, and have not withheld your son, your only son. Indeed, I will greatly bless you. And I will greatly multiply your seed as the stars of the heavens. This is the Abrahamic covenant. It becomes the greatest blessing to the human race in all of the rest of scripture. God says, Abraham, I created this test so that when you passed it, you would be proven to be worthy to get the greatest blessing that has ever come to the human race. This test would be the way that I show the rest of the universe that you are a worthy recipient of my blessings. The test was a gift, a gift to Abraham. God tested Abe so that he could bless Abe's socks off. God tests his people, tested Adam, tested Abraham, tested Job, tested Jesus. He tests us. He tests us for our good so that we can grow in holiness and so that we can earn honor and reward that we'll enjoy for all eternity. God tests his people, but he never tempts us. God never tempts us. Remember, a temptation is not meant for your good. It is meant for evil. It is meant to destroy you and lead you to sin. God never gives you that which harms you. He never gives you that which leads you to evil or sin. Look at verse 17. We'll study this in much more detail next week. Verse 17, every good thing given and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shifting shadow. James is saying that God unceasingly gives us nothing but good. Everything that God has ever done in your life has always been good. Now, it may be painful. It may be difficult in the moment, but it is meant for your good, not meant for your failure not meant for sin, meant to grow you and bless you. Everything God does in your life is for your good. And notice James says this, this weird phrase, there's no variation of shifting shadow with God. What he means is that God doesn't give you good stuff on Tuesday and bad stuff on Wednesday. Every day of your entire life, God gives you nothing but good. God gives everyone good. David put it this way in Psalm 145, 9, the Lord is good to all. His mercies are over all of his works. Everything God does is unceasingly good. So God never tempts you because a temptation is meant for your destruction. It's meant to lead you to sin. God would never do that to you. And so the application of this point is when you feel temptation, when you feel enticed towards sin, we need to recognize God is not doing that. That temptation is not from God. He is not setting me up for failure. God wants me to be holy that's God's aim, not my failure, not sin. We need to believe God is nothing but good to us every moment of every day of our lives. So if God is not the source of temptation, then what is? Where does this temptation within us that entices us towards sin? Where does that come from? Scripture tells us it's from three sources. First Satan, Satan and those demons who follow him, they tempt people. They tempted Job, they tempted Jesus, they tempt us. So that's one source of temptation. The world, not like the planet Earth, but human society, human culture that you live in, it tempts you towards sin. Uh, Then there's a third source, and this is the big one. The most predominant source of temptation, us. We are our own worst enemies. Where does temptation usually come from? Occasionally from Satan, occasionally from the world, usually from you. From within you. That leads us to the primary point that James wants to do this morning with us. He wants us to own our sin. He wants us to take responsibility. Don't blame God. Accept responsibility for your sin. Look with me at verses 14 and 15. But each one is tempted when he was carried away and enticed by his own lust. Then when lust has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and when sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. These verses are really interesting. Short little package here, just two little verses, Um, but it's really quite fascinating language that James uses here. It's like an episode of CSI. CSI, um, a crime happens, and investigators come, and they uh, try to establish, well, who did it, and how did they do it? That's what James is doing. Sin has happened. Who did it? How did they do it and what are the results? It's going to launch this investigation into our sin and what James is going to discover in the investigation of these two verses is that there is a seemingly unbreakable chain of events that surrounds our sin, a chain of events that begins with temptation We are tempted by lust. Right there at the beginning of verse 14, each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lust. Now, what is lust? Um, That word epithumia in Greek, it means desire, and occasionally it can be used neutrally. A good desire, a bad desire, but usually it means just the bad desires, immoral desires, what we would think of as lusts. Now, often when we hear the word lust, we think particularly of sexual temptation. That's actually too narrow for the Greek word. Um, Lust in scripture includes sexual temptation, but it actually includes any sinful desire. Any desire for what God has prohibited. That's what the Bible means by lust. Any desire for anything that God has prohibited from you. Now, what's really fascinating here is notice how James frames lust. He says this man is tempted by his own lust. These sinful desires aren't being whispered in his ear by Satan. Sinful desires aren't coming from a TV show he's watching. These sinful desires are his own. They belong to him. They come from within him. We are the source of our own temptation. From within our hearts, that is where these sinful lusts flow. What James is getting at here is is what theologians call depravity. That human beings are naturally bent towards sin. The, The basic inclination of the human heart is not towards righteousness. It's not even in neutral. It is towards sin. That's the basic bent of our heart. From the day we're born to the day we die, our basic bent is towards sin. Paul puts it this way in Romans 7. I find the principle that evil is present in me. Evil is not external to me, it's inside of me. The one who wants to do good, for I joyfully concur with the law of God in the inner man, but I see a different law in the members of my body, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin, which is in my members, literally in my body, in me. Sin dwells. Sin lives. Temptation comes from within me. Um, What Paul's getting at is what we call the sin nature, that by nature we are sinners, we're bent towards sin. We all have this sin nature, and from within this sin nature, lust springs. Sinful temptations come from within us. Again, James is saying you're your own worst enemy. You're the one betraying you. Sin within you, tempting you. And it's interesting, the language that James uses, this lust that comes from within us, it entices us. The verb he uses there is is actually a term from fishing. It's a fishing word. You would would throw out a bait that would entice a fish, just the right bait, to entice that fish to come out and grab the hook. This summer, I had the privilege to go fly fishing for the first time, never done it. Um, But not to toot my own horn, I feel like I really did well first time fly fishing. I caught a ton of fish, but I cannot take any credit for it. I was with a guide and the guide created the flies. and He tied them on the end of my line and he told me where to cast it and he told me how to reel it in. I mean, detailed instructions, two inches to the left, now, now, now. I mean, over and over again. And it worked perfectly. The guide could actually see the fish. I don't know if he had like crazy vision or what, but he could watch the fish, see the bait and watch them come out and take it. It was incredible. We caught fish after fish because that guide knew exactly how to entice them. And that's what temptation does to you. That's what your sin nature does. It's part of you. It's inside of you. It is infused in you. It knows exactly how to tempt you perfectly, how to put the bait in front of you at the right time in the right way. Temptation hits you when you are most vulnerable. It appeals to your strongest desires. It elicits your strongest feelings. It does whatever it can do to lure you to take the bait. So we just need to recognize, where does temptation come from? From us. We're betraying ourselves every day. Temptation comes from within me, perfectly designing this bait to entice me to sin. But it is crucial at this point in the chain of events When temptation is luring us, if you have not yet taken the bait, you have not yet sinned. That's crucial to understand. Often as as believers, we feel guilty over the temptations that we struggle with. Man, this thought that just flew through my mind, this temptation, this feeling I have, it is so unchristian. If people knew, I would feel so ashamed. God doesn't want you to feel guilty for your temptations. He does not hold you responsible for what you're tempted by. You can't control that. Now, you can't do stupid things. It puts you in the path of temptation. That's sinful. You'll be held responsible for that. But if you're trying to walk with the Lord and temptation comes, you've not done anything wrong. As temptation lures that bait in front of you, you have not sinned until you take the bait. Don't feel guilty over your temptations. But if you take the bait then that takes you to the next chain in this sequence, the next link in this chain of events. When we give in and take the bait, sin is born. When we give in, sin is born. Look at the beginning of verse 15. Then when lust has conceived, it gives birth to sin. It's actually translated really well. It's pregnancy language. These are literal terms for conception and pregnancy and birth that James is using here. And his point is, when you give in to temptation, when you take the bait, sin is born. Like a child, sin is now alive in your life. Sin is now alive, having consequences in you because you gave in. So the moment we give in, sin is born. James is gonna help us understand what he means by sin as we go through this book. The short answer is it's anything you say, do, or think that is outside of the will of God. So very comprehensive definition James will give. When we give into temptation, sin is born in our lives. Now it is alive. And if we allow sin to live in us, if we allow sin to stick around, then the next link in this chain of events is that sin grows up and death is born. That's the second half of verse 15. When sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. Again, it's pregnancy terms. When sin is accomplished, the idea in Greek there um, is, is when sin is grown up, When sin is fully grown, now it's mature and so it can have babies of its own. That's the point. When sin has lived long enough to have babies of its own, what are the babies of sin? What is the offspring of sin? Death. When you give into sin, it breeds death in your life. Really interesting contrast. Look back at verse 12. If you give into endurance, what does that produce for you? A crown of life. When you give into sin, what does that produce for you? death. Could not be a stronger contrast. Obedience brings life, disobedience brings death. Now what does James mean by the word death? It's used in a variety of ways in scripture, a lot of different things that that word can mean, Uh, but we get a clue. James actually only uses that word in Greek, death thanatos, one other time in the book. It's actually the last verse of the book. Turn to the end. Chapter 5, verse 20. Chapter 5, verse 20, James says, let him know that he who turns a sinner from the error of his way will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. Will save his soul from death. We hear that word soul and we kind of freak out, think heaven or hell. Soul just means life. That's all it means. What he's saying is if you turn a sinner from the error of his ways, you save his physical life. We're talking about literal death here. The, the ending of, of your literal physical life. Premature physical death, that is what sin brings. It brings literal death in your life. You get a sense of that. Look a few verses earlier, verse 15. The prayer offered in faith will restore the one who is sick and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, they will be forgiven him. James is saying when you give into sin, the result can be that you get sick. Sin can bring sickness. And if that sickness left untreated, not dealt with, you will literally die. Your physical life will come to an end. James is telling us that when we give in to sin, it will bring death, literal, physical death. Now, by saying that, he's just tapping into a common theme throughout the Old Testament. If you read the Old Testament, you'll see that over and over again. Sin brings a premature end to your earthly life. Ezekiel put it this way. When a righteous person turns away from his righteousness and does injustice, he shall die for it. For the injustice that he has done, he shall die. Again, when a wicked person turns away from the wickedness he has committed and does what is just and right, he shall shall save his life. Both Ezekiel and James are not talking about heaven and hell. Not talking about eternal life and eternal damnation here. They're talking about preserving your earthly life. Do you want to have a long life on this planet? Then obey God. Do you want your life to end quickly? Then sin. Sin brings a premature end to physical life. That's really easy to prove. Just think about uh, a few sins for a moment. Taking illegal drugs, abusing alcohol, uh, stealing people's stuff, uh, having premarital sex. All of those are risky behaviors statistically, all of those will shorten your life. You can uh, OD and die. Um, You can have alcohol poisoning and die. Someone will shoot you in the back when you rob their stuff. Um, You can get an STD and die. All of those things can end your life prematurely because sin is inherently risky. Sin can kill you literally. Now, the challenge is, as we look at that, as we say, well, James, that's not always the case. That's not always the case. The righteous do not always live longer than the unrighteous. And and sin does not always kill us, otherwise we would all be dead because we have all sinned. So we're here, we're alive, James, sin does not always lead to death. So what is James doing here? Well, Well, James is pointing out to us the most extreme consequence that can come from sin in the life of a believer It's really important, that clarification at the end. He's pointing out the most extreme circumstance or the most extreme consequence that can come from sin in the life of a believer. We talked the first week about how James is written to believers. The whole book is based on the presupposition that you have trusted Christ. Look at chapter two, verse one. Chapter two, verse one, my brethren, do not hold your faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ with an attitude of personal favoritism. He assumes faith. He assumes that they have already believed the gospel. He's talking to believers. We who have trusted in Christ, we have eternal life. We have eternal life. We're going to spend eternity with God. We can never lose that eternal life. And so that reality begs a question. If I know I'm going to spend eternity with God in heaven and I can never lose that eternal life, then why not sin in this life? Sin is pretty fun after all. Sin is easy. Sin is pleasurable. Get a lot of of kick out of sin. So why not sin it up if my eternity is taken care of? What does James say? Well, because sin will kill you. Sin can't send you to hell, but it can put you in the grave early for a believer. As believers, why not give in to sin? Because it can kill you. He's pointing out the most extreme consequence that can come to a believer giving in to sin. But as we go through the book, we will see more consequences. It doesn't always lead to death, but it always leads to bad stuff. James is going to walk us through all of these consequences of sin. For a believer to give into sin, it can lead to death. It can bring shame at the judgment seat of Christ. We'll talk about that in future weeks in James. He's going to tell us that one day we're going to stand before Jesus for judgment, and if we gave into sin regularly in this life, we're going to feel ashamed at that moment. The moment when we see our Savior for the first time, that should be so joyous, so wonderful, we're going to be ashamed if we gave into sin. He's going to tell us that, that giving into sin makes our lives worthless. Do you want your life to count? you want to have a meaningful life, then you cannot sin. You must flee from sin. He's going to tell us that sin creates conflict with others. If you want to enjoy peace in this life, then you better walk in righteousness because sin creates conflict between people. Sin brings God's discipline upon us. As a loving father, he punishes us and life is difficult when we give into sin. Finally, as we saw in chapter 5 verse 15, when we give into sin, it can lead to literal physical illness. Sin brings pain. What James wants us to understand believers, sin cannot damn you. You have already been forgiven of all of your sins. You have been freed from the penalty of your sin, but not the consequence. I hope that's clear in your mind. As believers, we are free from the penalty of sin, but not the consequences of sin. If you take the bait, that temptation offers you, if you give in to sin, it begins a seemingly inescapable chain of events that leads to all of this horrible stuff, all of this pain and suffering. It leads you down a pathway towards death. That brings us to the application this morning. I hope looking at the board that you think, you know, I really would like to escape that. I really would not like this to characterize my life. So how do we escape this? How do we avoid this pathway through sin to death? As I walk you through this application, I'd invite the men who are gonna serve communion to head to the back and get it ready. Really excited that we get to celebrate communion with one another uh, in this passage. How do we escape this path from sin that leads to death? I think James' first application for us, the best way to escape this uh, chain of events is to break it at the start. Don't give in. Don't take the bait. James wants you to understand the reason he is using pregnancy language throughout this passage is because he wants you to understand once you take the bait, once you give in to temptation, you have started something that is really hard to stop. Just like conception brings a baby into the world. Man, that's a a major change in your life. So when you give in to sin, it brings major changes. It launches you on this chain of events that is seemingly inescapable. My homework to you, I would encourage you this week to read Proverbs 7. Proverbs 7 is a companion passage to what we're reading in James. Proverbs 7 is going to introduce you to a young, foolish man. A young, foolish man who is going to be seduced by an adulteress and then killed. He will physically die as a result of his sin. And as you read Proverbs 7, I want you to ask yourself when did this guy go wrong? When did he make his mistake? And what you will see, he blew it when he took the first step. The very first step, when he left his home to head to her part of town, that's when he blew it. If he would have just not taken that first step, he would have never fell prey to her. He would have never started this chain of events that led to his death. God wants you to escape at the very beginning. When temptation comes, flee, when temptation comes, run from it. So read Proverbs 7, and I'd encourage you to memorize 1 Corinthians ten thirteen. This is one of my favorite verses. This is actually the verse that I quote to myself more often than any other in the course of a given week. Memorize 1 Corinthians ten thirteen. Paul says, No temptation has overtaken you, but such as is common to man. And God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation will provide the way of escape also, so that you will be able to endure it. I want you to notice, what does God promise to give you in that verse? He doesn't promise to give you strength. He doesn't promise to give you strength to face that temptation. He doesn't promise to give you endurance while you play with that temptation. What does he give you? A way of escape, a back door to run away. God doesn't want you playing with temptation. When the bait is in front of you, swim the other way. Flee. God is giving you a way out. That's the promise. Whenever temptation comes, God has opened up a back door. You need to find it and you need to run. Don't sit there in front of the bait. Practically speaking, just a few practical steps. If you want to flee from temptation, I really encourage you to limit your access to tempting circumstances The times and places, people, media, and technology that cause you to give in to sin, um, don't, don't play with it. Don't accept that stuff in your life. If there's some situation, circumstance that you find yourself often failing in, don't pray for strength to resist it. Pray for an escape. Run away from it. Get rid of that thing in your life. Cut off that source of temptation. And then second, do things that help you to escape. College students, I want you to know sometimes the most godly thing you can do to take a nap. Seriously, (laughs) you've got to take a nap sometimes. You need to be rested. You need to eat well. You need exercise. You need to be reading scripture. You need to be praying. You need to live a balanced life so that when temptation comes, you have your wits about you. You can think straight and find the back door out of there. You need to do things that make you able to run. Okay, so don't take the bait to begin with, but what if you do what if you have taken the bait, you've given into sin, how do you escape this chain of events? The good news is there is a way out of verse 15. That's good news. James doesn't talk about it, but John does. First John chapter 1, verse 9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. John is talking to believers who have given into sin, but he tells them you can get off of the hook. You can escape this chain of events that leads to death through confession, Confession simply means to agree with God about your sin. To agree that you have sinned, to agree that that sin is bad, to agree that you need to turn from that sin. Agree with God about your sin, own it. Take responsibility for your sin. Confess it to God and then what will God do? Well, he's he's not necessarily gonna remove the consequences of sin. If you're drinking a lot of alcohol, he's not gonna suddenly heal your liver. No, but you confess it and it restores your fellowship with God. God is our father. If we've trusted in Jesus, God will always be our father. We can never lose that. But just like with your earthly father, when you do bad things, it erects a wall of distance between you and him. You feel estranged from him because of the sin that you've committed. The good news is his confession removes that wall. It removes that shame. It's gone. And we are back in God's loving embrace. We experience his power and his grace in our lives. This morning, I'm excited that we get to take confession because what I'd like us to do is to take this time in confession. It's one good thing. I know all of us, including myself, have sinned this week. We have stuff to confess to God. Paul tells us that before we take the elements, we should inspect ourselves. We should go to God in confession before we celebrate communion. We should acknowledge the sin in our lives. And so I'd ask you as as the men come forward, if you guys want to come forward, as the elements are passed and as the band plays, just go before the Lord and acknowledge to him your sin. Ask him to cleanse you of it and to help you to walk in righteousness. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 11, For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, in the night in which he was betrayed, took bread, and when given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup also after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. If you'll join me in prayer. Heavenly Father, we praise you. We worship you that you are a holy, holy, holy God. We thank you that you have never sinned, that sin has never been in any way appealing to you. You've never been tempted even for a moment by it. We praise you that you are righteous and just, pure and holy. We thank you that you, a holy God, would choose to love us, who are so unholy, who fall so far short of you. We thank you that you love us so much that you sent your own son, Jesus Christ. Holy, holy Jesus Christ, you sent him to take sin upon himself, to take our punishment in our place and die for us. Thank you, Lord, for your great love. Thank you that you then raised him from the dead, conquering sin and death for us so that we could be with you for all eternity. And Father, I lift up um, any person in this room, Lord, who has not yet understood that blessed truth that your son died for them and rose from the dead. Lord, I lift up any person in this room who feels guilty, any person who feels like they're trying to earn their way to you, somehow merit your love. I pray, Father, that you would help them to cease to quiet and to be still and to recognize that your love is not something to be earned. It is an absolutely free gift to be received. I pray that they would receive it through faith, that they would believe that Jesus earned it for them through his death and resurrection. I pray for all of us, Lord, as we walk through this week to come. Father, we we fail so often. I pray that your spirit would convict us of failure, that your spirit would convict us of sin, and that when we do sin, that we would be quick to get on our knees and confess it before you, to acknowledge it and to be honest about it. I pray that you would break us over our sin, Lord, and help us to be soft of heart before you. And I pray even more than that, Lord, that you would help us to escape sin, that when temptation comes, that we would make wise choices to flee, that we would do whatever is needed to run the other way. I pray, Father, that this week each and every one of us would walk in greater holiness than last week so that more and more we might reflect the light of your holiness to this world. Help us to please you all for the glory of your son Jesus who makes it all possible. In his name we pray, amen.